We're getting ever so close to finally firing up our barbecues for 2016. This is Adashina Koiki, and once again, you're listening to the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, episode number 27 in your ear right now as Memorial Day, the unofficial start to summer just around the corner. And late May is usually when racing enthusiasts get their interest in racing peaked more than any other time on the racing calendar. The Grand Prix of Monaco on the Formula One circuit, that prestigious race taking place in late May, getting ready to start in just a couple of days. And here in the United States, we have our crown jewel of racing, the greatest spectacle in racing, the Indianapolis 500. And joining us as our feature interview on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast is one of the pioneers and legends of open wheel racing in the United States. Lynn St. James, one of nine women to start and compete in the Indianapolis 500 and the former president of the Women's Sports Foundation joining us as our feature interview on episode number 27 of the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. St. James finished 11th in her first start at the Indianapolis 500. She won the Indy 500 Rookie of the Year in 1992 after her 11th place finish as a rookie, quote-unquote rookie, her first Indy 500 race. She was 45 years old uh, when she performed that feat in 1992. Got to start in five other Indy 500s as well, and she joined us to talk about her career in racing and her late start beginning her racing career in her mid-20s, but how she made up for that, how an episode and episodes of McMillan and Wife influenced her career in a positive way. She explains that uh, during our interview, as well as the challenges that she faced as a woman in the male-dominated sport of auto racing and how she was able to overcome that and also the challenges that women still face in breaking through in terms of really making a name in open wheel racing and in auto racing in general in the United States and across the world. So an all-encompassing interview with Lynn St. James. That is our feature interview. We also get a chance to talk with the WNBA All-Star, Angel McCautry of the Atlanta Dream. Atlanta getting off to a 3-1 and one start. We joined Angel. Angel and the Atlanta Dream after their overtime victory over the New York Liberty on Tuesday, 85-79. to The Atlanta Dream improving to 3-1 and on the season. A lot of prognostications had the Atlanta Dream finishing near or at the bottom of the Eastern Conference. And Angel McCautry explains to us how they have used those predictions as motivation going into this 2016 season. And also Angel McCautry uh, letting us in on a couple of her radio talents as well during the interview. So a fun interview that we had with Angel McCautry in the Atlanta Dream locker room right after their overtime victory over the team that had the best record in the WNBA last season, the New York Liberty. So Angel McCautry's interview is after the Lynn St. James interview. She is our feature interview. That's about 30 minutes in length. Then after that, the Angel McCautry interview. So enjoy the interviews right now. And as always, we'll see you at the very end of the show. 
In just a few short days, the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500 will take place at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and a lot of men and a lot of women have made history at Indianapolis in the greatest spectacle in racing. And joining us right now on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, we are pleased to be joined by one of the nine women to start and compete as a driver at the Indianapolis 500. She won the 1992 Indy 500 Rookie of the Year, finishing in 11th place that year. Again, we are joined by champion race car driver, businesswoman, motivational speaker as well, Lynn St. James, joining us right now on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast from Indianapolis, Indiana. First of all, Lynn, thank you so very much for joining us. Um, I am sure that all of those memories from 92 and all of the other starts uh, that you had at the Indy 500 are kind of rushing in uh, right now. What are your emotions as you are back um, at Indianapolis Motor Speedway? Well, I can tell you, yesterday was a very emotional day uh, since it was, uh, you know, qualifying and, and uh, watching qualifying and the drama um, and the intensity, uh, you know, all of the emotions that every competitor, whether it's a team member or an owner or a sponsor and obviously particularly the drivers um you know i kind of relived all of that yesterday watching qualifying and you know it was a fabulous day it was beautiful and sunny and of course it set the field of 33 cars to race in the indy 500 so um you know and being the 100th running i'm also i guess spending more time reflecting on the history of long before i ever went there um you know i've been viewing some films and of course talking to people and and just to know that I'm part of this, you know, 100-year history of a, of a huge, you know, just not only a huge racetrack, but it's a facility, um, there's a test track it was originally designed, and, and all of the icons, the automotive icons that have come through that, and watching, you know, watching some of those early films of, of the hundreds of thousands of people that came even back in the early 1900s, it's still kind of mind-boggling, so... Um, so really a very emotional time, I guess, you know, I guess that's one of the joys of getting older is you can really spend more time reflecting on the past than you did while you were doing it. <laughs> well, in the past, uh, uh, 1992, uh, your first start, um, uh, at the Indianapolis 500, I believe that was your first, uh, start, um, in open wheel racing, or at least in IndyCar, oh, yeah. IndyCar level. Well, it was my, it was actually only my second open wheel of any kind, um, and it was my first oval track, but, you know, I've been racing for a long time, so I came with a lot of racing experience, and, and, and experience in high-speed cars at high-speed tracks at Talladega, Daytona, at Lamar, and so, you know, I had, I had a lot to, to bring with me, but I didn't have the particular type of experience I wished I'd had, but, you know, you work, you work so hard to get someplace, and, and when you, you know, you can't re- go back and recreate your own experience in history, you have to bring what you have, and so, um, so yeah, 92 was my, my first oval track race, and my first, uh, and only my second open wheel, and obviously my first Indianapolis and, and Indy type racing. And that, and I remember watching uh, the 1992 Indianapolis uh, 500. Oh, wow. It's probably, um, it's probably of all of the races. It's definitely one of the, if not the most memorable, of the uh, Indy 500 races because of the finish, of course, uh, with uh, Alistair Jr. Uh, beating out Scott Goodyear by what four hundredths um, of a second, and some of the greats uh, in racing. I believe uh, 
participated in their last Indy 500. AJ Foyt, as a driver at least, AJ Foyt, uh, Rick Mears, Tom Sneva as well. I think that was his uh, last uh, Indy 500. Uh, Gordon Johncock as well. I think that was his last uh, uh, Indy 500 as a driver as well. Um, what are your outside of finishing and winning Rookie of the Year? What? are your biggest memories of that weekend or at least in the weeks leading up to that race in 1992? Well, I think um, I'm impressed that you do all that. That's pretty impressive. Um, I, <laughs> I, have to say, I have to say that I, I think for the whole month of May, I'm not sure my feet ever really touched the ground. I mean, I just felt that I was sort of floating um, in the presence of greatness of others and, and then just, you know, trying to live every day and, and absorb every day. Because at that point, I, I really only had sponsorship for one race, and so I didn't know what was going to happen after. So I just decided to not worry about it. I'd think about it. And, and just take in every day, uh, literally just take it all in as much as I possibly can and bring the best that I had. Um, and then on race day, I mean, first of all, one of the other things that it's sort of memorable for, I think it was the coldest day in the history of the race since oh. and before. And so it was a very cold day, um, which, of course, I didn't care. I, mean, I didn't know what it, was, what it is, you know. But, uh, and of course, now that I do look at some of those numbers, you know, they, they had uh, many former winners and they had many veterans that, uh, you're right, that were their last races. But I think, for me, it was... Um, you know, it was just, Lynn, just pay attention, bring your best. Uh, I have to say one of the more shocking things was when, before we even took the green flag, because they have like three parade laps, which we desperately need, by the way, just to sort of get in line and get our tires warmed up, particularly on a cold day like that. And uh, it's that the pole sitter, Roberto Guerrero, actually crashed before the green flag. Yes, and and right. he, <laughs> I was so shocked, and, and I'm sure he was, and everybody was, but I, I just remember saying to myself, when, you know, you knew you had to pay attention, but you better crank it up because if, if somebody like that can have an error like that or have a, a, something like that happen, you know, that, and we're not even up to speed yet, this is going to be a crazy day. So I just, I really ramped up whatever level of concentration I possibly could have had. And the rest of it was just, just, you know, ride it out and be the best and do the best you can and learn as you go and don't make any mistakes. And, you know, I, I just, it was, a, you know, then it was at the end. I think taking that checkered flag, and I, I actually got passed um, in the last couple of laps by A.J. Floyd, of all people. Um, so he finished 10th, but I finished 11th. And I have to say, I was like really, I remember pounding, literally pounding on the steering wheel on the cool-off lap saying, we're going to get him next time, we're going to get him next time. <laughs> and, of course, there, I didn't really have a next time at that particular time, but that that's the theory, or that's the philosophy that every driver has when you kind of maybe didn't quite get it as good a done as you wish you could have got it done, um, you always think, well, I'm going to get him next time. You know, the next race I'm going to get him. And so it was a real, uh, I, I mean, it's stupid as, in a way, now that I look back on that with, with my thinking, um, at the same time, that was the racer coming out at me. So part of you was thinking, I could have had a top 10 finish. A part of you was thinking, well, if anyone was going to pass me for 10th, at least let it be a four-time champion. Well, I didn't know, <laughs> you know, I didn't know until the race was over that that was, ah. I, I knew it was for position. I just didn't like getting passed, you know, period. Um, I didn't know till it was over that it was AJ, and I didn't know it was over till it was over until after the race. I mean, that it was it would have been a top ten finish. And in fact, the crew had told me on the radio, "Don't worry about it; it's not for position." Because I think they were worried that I might try to do something that I shouldn't have done. You know, just as, in an effort as a typical racer, you might have tried to block them or do something kind of crazy, and which could mess you up. And so, of course, it was for position. And so, afterward, I was like yelling at them, saying, "Why did you let that happen?" <laughs> 
I mean, it's, anyway. it's, it's a historic moment. And after you finish, you start yelling at uh, yeah. <laughs> your, your pit crew members. And <laughs> yeah, well. uh, once again, uh, race car legend Lynn St. James uh, joining us right now as we lead up to the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500. And you made six consecutive starts uh, at the uh, Indianapolis 500 from 92 to 97, and your last start uh, was in uh, 2000 as well. Uh, Did you think, or did you know that in 2000, after a couple of years where you just missed out, uh, did you know that 2000, and by the way, I'm I'm not here to uh, kind of highlight uh, uh, age, but you were uh, 45 when you started um, in 1992. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. Uh, it's yeah. just facts. No, no, you're <laughs> okay. right. No, you're right. I it's was 45 just... in 92, which, you know, is, I think, to the, still holds the record for being the oldest rookie in the history of the Indy <laughs> 500. So, and every year you do get older. So you're yeah. right. You're on, you're on target. And I was going to get to um, how you got into... Uh, racing and your interest in uh, uh, sports racing, let alone uh, to open wheel. But did you really, did you think in 2000 that once you made it after a couple of years uh, where you uh, missed out that this, that was going to be your uh, last, at least Indy 500? No, 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 I, I did not know. I mean, I, um, and I was, I mean, I got bumped in 98, 99 and, I, and after being in six consecutive, as you said, and I, and being in 15 Indy car races, I kept getting better and I was caught totally, um, you know, I just was totally caught off guard when in ninety eight, ninety nine. I mean, I I never assumed or took it for granted that I would be in the field or that I qualified. But I have to admit, it was a real comeuppance. I mean, quite frankly, after watching Roger Penske in, in ninety five, not make the field with two of his cars being a, you know, both former winners, it was just a real shock. And 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 now to say that the shock was on me, you know, I I was shocked. And um, and it was during the time that the Indy Racing League was formed, and there was just a lot of up and down going on within the league and within everybody, and I, I don't blame anybody. It's just that I, I just didn't have the right package, and we didn't get it done, so we got bumped. And I have to admit, I think what really was what really really drove me was that I could not walk away. I mean, I knew I was getting older. I mean, and I <laughs> I knew this wasn't going to go on forever. So, but I, at the same time, I thought I can't walk away from this after six consecutive starts and fifteen races and go. You know, I guess I'm done. You know, I just couldn't. I had to put together one more, at least one more program. And to be honest, I was trying to put together a program to really sort of bring my best because I felt like I was getting, still getting better, um, so that I could run a whole season. I think the thing that was really grating on me was that I kept getting indie-only type sponsorships, and I really wanted to run a whole season. So I was hoping that 2000 would be a very successful campaign that could then enable me in 2001 to run the whole season. So I'm always thinking ahead, and I was always thinking of how can we improve. And, you know, but to be honest, my my performance in the car in 2000 wasn't, uh, during the race, the car wasn't quite right, and, you know, we did end up crashing out. And I, I just somehow I knew, you know, I, I'm not getting better anymore. Uh, um, I mean, I was 53 years old, and, and I, I, I stretched it as far as I could. And so it wasn't until the race was over that I knew this probably is it um, because I don't want – I'm not stupid. I mean, I'm pretty stubborn, and I very much love the sport, and I still race in vintage racing, and I'm still loving it, and I'm having a good time. But at over 220 miles an hour, you – you know, everything is, if it's going by a little faster than your brain is processing information, then you're going, it's time, it's time to be, be done, you know, so. Yeah. Um, and you, didn't know that. 
Didn't know, know it until it was over. Yes. Yeah, not, yeah. At the, not until it was over, yeah. And how frustrating yeah. was it, and you mentioned how grinning it was, not to be able to compete in a full season. Um, I guess how frustrating was it? What were the factors that led you and your teams not to necessarily compete in a full season? Well, that was the most frustrating part. As proud as I am of my six consecutive starts, and, and quite frankly, as proud as I am that considering that I never had a full season, that I really qualified well and, and raced well in most of those. I had a couple of mechanical failures and things that were out of my control. But I kept, I mean, Dick Simon, who was my owner for most of those, kept saying, well, what we could do if we had a whole season, uh, you know, under our belt, because you have, you'd have a chance to really hone in and we would develop as a team with you and, and you have the talent and the ability. I mean, I'm like, I'm trying, we're trying. <laughs> and it was always about the lack of sponsorship. And I think that's still an issue um, for many drivers, not just women, okay. but it's still a bigger issue for the women because it. There's, there's a, I, the irony, and I haven't figured it out, believe me, is the fact that even though it, it does draw more interest because it still is unique, even though we've had the success of nine women going, particularly as we went on to 2000. I mean, Sarah Fisher was in the field at 2000. In my last race, it was her first race. She went on to have a pretty successful, you know, couple of decades as a, as a driver and owner. Danica came along in the early 2000s, 2003 or four, I think, and she had, you know, really set the world on fire. And then we've had many since. So that, you know, it, change happened where there were more women showing up and more women getting the ability to be able to race. But the reality was most of them, with the exception, I think, of Sarah Fisher and Simona Di Silvestre and Danica, there were still, uh, you know, struggles to have enough funding to run a whole season. And and if you aren't really campaigning on the whole program for the whole year where you build with the team and you, you build your, you know, your own strength and your own confidence and your own knowledge base, it's really hard to set the world on fire. And so, um, I, and it still comes from a lack of funding. And there's a lot, a lot of sponsorship goes to people, and it surprises me that for some reason, even if it's a new driver or rookie driver, they believe that driver is going to win the race, and they just still don't believe that a woman's going to win the race. Danica came the closest, um, and I think that was 2000, again, three or four. It was a rookie year. She led 19 laps, came in third or fourth. But, you know, there's still that hesitancy to want to put the money behind and their, their brand and their company and their whole support behind somebody they don't think has a chance of winning and unfortunately until women start winning at the top level um then that funding will be very very difficult um and that's still an issue today i guess what's that going to take to have sponsors uh throw their money and throw their arms around uh those drivers is it going to, t- as you said, unless they see uh, women racing and women competing on a, I guess, a week-to-week or race-to-race basis, that that's not going to happen? Is that the main thing that has to change, or what are some yeah, of the other I mean, okay. No, it, it, it's good, but they're going to have to win. I mean, I think there's still that criticism now with Danica running in NASCAR, and she's so competitive and doing really a great job, but yet so are the other 20-plus guys that are out there. I mean, you, you know, it, it's not like one is going to be so dominant that you're going to have that ability to just get that win under your belt you have to literally be able to week in and week out beat the best and and so that has to happen whether you're go-kart racing or whether you're racing in IMSA sports cars or whether you're racing wherever what category you're racing I mean it's happening in, in NHRA right now in the drag racing world where you know you've got women literally winning almost one one out of the four or five categories just about every week 
for every race, one of them are winning. And, and that's happening over there, but it's not happening in sports cars or open wheel racing. And when you only have one in the field out of 20, 30, or 40 competitors, depending on what category you're racing in, that, that you know, the odds of anybody, I mean, the odds of any one actually winning is, it gets pretty slim. And when it's just gender based or only one woman in the field, then, you know, the odds are really tough. So we just, we have to have more women, um, and, but we also have to have women that wherever they're racing, they need to be winning so that they are, they're seen on the podium. They're seen holding the checker flag and holding the trophy. Because uh, that sends a message to everybody, yeah. you know, that, hey, women can not only race, they can win. Uh, once again, Lynn St. James joining us, talking about open wheel racing, sports car racing, getting ready for the Indianapolis 500. And uh, and you've more than done your part. You started uh, a business, a foundation, Women in the Women's Circle Foundation, uh, uh, which helps to educate and train and pretty much groom uh, the uh, future drivers and women who will be driving in sports car racing and, uh, and open wheel racing. Uh, what have you seen during your time in being a mentor to women who want to get into the field of, of racing. Uh, have you seen the interest of it peak uh, from uh, your perspective in terms of more women uh, wanting to uh, be race car drivers, whether it be uh, the Formula One circuit, open wheel, uh, or IndyCar, I should say. So how has that, uh, that experience been in terms of seeing women um, and seeing young women and, and having them and, and mentoring them? Well, there's definitely growth. I mean, I see more, you know, whether I go to a go-kart race or whether I go to a quarter midget race or whether I go to any type of race, actually, uh, particularly at the youth level, there are more and more young girls now doing it. So that's all good news. Yeah. Um, I'm now working with the Women's Sports Foundation, which was founded by Billie Jean King, which I was president of and, uh, and I've been on the board and have been long involved with them over many years. So uh, I've now got a um, scholarship fund for young women in racing um, called Project Podium with the Women's Sports Foundation. So, you know, we're really keeping our eye out there. Um, we've got some grant recipients, um, Shay Holbrook, um, uh, Isla Adrian, who, who is running in the, uh, the Mazda Road to Indy in the 2000 series. Um, you know, Courtney Crone, uh, who's running out in California right now in sprint cars and getting ready to go into more open-wheel road racing who's only 15 years old. Um, Michaela Marks, who's a 13-year-old go-kart racer, was a, 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 college, a recipient of a grant. So they're out there. Um, it's just a long road, and, and, and it's also one that, you know, they, they have to be as willing to not only work as hard on the racetrack, but also off the racetrack and learn that this is a business. I mean, it's wonderful to be able to do this for fun, and it's a lot more fun when you win, and that's all fabulous for everybody. But when you decide that you want to do this professionally, you have to kind of switch mental gears and realize this is a business, and it's like any business. You know, you have to really be aware of the business value you have to bring to your sponsors, even at, at a grassroots level. And so, um, but I'm encouraged um, by how many of them that are out there. And so we're just like anything. I, I look for the cream. There's a lot of milk out there, but I look for the cream. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's so interesting to hear about the up-and-comers and those who are in their teens and are interested and are very active in sports car racing. And although you had an interest and have always, almost always had an interest with cars and racing, uh, you didn't really race competitively until, what, I'm guessing, your mid-20s, correct? Yeah, yeah, remember. exactly. I mean, it's... It's a different world today. I mean, that was a long time ago. That was over 40 years ago when I started, and I did start late even for them. 
Yeah. Uh, but really, a lot of times the drivers didn't even start at that time. Back 40, 50 years ago, you really didn't start until you got your driver's license, you know, yeah. so you were at least in your late teens, maybe early 20s. Today, all of these young drivers that are out there that we're watching, uh, even if they're in their 30, 20s and 30s now, started racing when they were probably before preteens, you know, when they were seven, eight, nine years old. So the girls are now doing that as well. And, and you know, I worry a little bit about burnout, but, um, but you know, it's important that they have a life and that they understand as they mature as human beings. Um, that, that that they're ready for the challenge and for the work ahead of them, but um, but yeah, they're they're starting young, and and it's amazing to me how well they handle that. I mean, to see these kids go out there and bang wheels, and you know, and they're, and they're bearing down, and they're fighting for the corner, and then they're you know after the race is over, they're out playing frisbee or something, you know, with their buddies, <laughs> you know, because they're still kids and they're out there having fun doing something else while everybody else is in their other classes on the track. So it's a healthy competitive environment um so it's, it's great to watch the young people doing it swapping paint and playing frisbee afterwards that is definitely yeah. a full life <laughs> all right when you're young <laughs> all right um and it was your mom who piqued your interest in uh sports racing or at least in cars uh, is that right like when you were young was it your mom who- yeah oh my mom yeah my mom just had the she, my mom actually was a survivor of polio and and so a car for her was so critical i mean she could walk but she needed that car if she was going very far at all and so she she just talked about cars all the time i mean everything in our household was about our car and and um and i you know at the time i thought it was rather crazy and and I, but I have to admit, I think maybe it did sort of rub off on me and have some influence. And she taught me how to drive, and but not she had no idea that I'd ever race. I mean, that was not in her, in her mindset at all, and not happy about it to be honest. I mean, proud that I that I did it and I was successful. But I mean, every time I would, particularly if I won a race, when I would win a race, even my amateur stuff, she'd say, "Oh, that's great, honey. I mean, you got that out of your system now." <laughs> like, what does she want no, you to do? <laughs> What did she want well, you to do? Just, well, she just wanted me to be, you know, she taught me to be a self-sufficient, educated young woman and hope that I would, you know, to be honest, find traditional values and get a husband and have a family and, you know, just be happy. But being happy didn't, in her mind, mean racing cars. <laughs> Mm-mm. Despite that, uh, not, I shouldn't say despite that because, of course, every uh, parent wants the best for uh, their child. But you were winning; you were doing something you loved as well. So, didn't a part of you, even when you were winning, feel, I guess, bad that even your mom, who got you in a way into the sport that you were in, just wanted you to kind of get out of that and get settled down? No, I mean, I we, we, we managed it. I mean, I, I realized as a mom, and now that I'm a mom, I understand. It was really just out of concern for, for you know, my injury. And but you, you know, I mean, people get killed, and, and they get severely injured. And so, you know, she lit a candle um, every race weekend, and I didn't find that out for a few years. But um, so I knew that it was just out of concern. But as I said, later, particularly after I got on television, I mean, it was really funny. When I started racing in the IMSA series, in the Camel GT series, and it was on television, and she could watch it on TV. I think things changed because her pride level, and then seeing me on the podium, and seeing me being, you know, recognized for my accomplishments, her pride sort of elevated her appreciation, but being a mom, the concern was always first and foremost, and so she was just worried about my, my well-being, but 
other than that, she was quite proud. Yeah. So I never, I never felt like I had to defend it, you know. <laughs> Good. And uh, I'd always tease her and say, hey, Mom, you taught me how to drive. <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> I guess, uh, uh, how does she react to, and, um, and just uh, reading about you a little bit as well, just to get to know you a little more, uh, changing uh, your last name uh, to uh, St. James, how does she react to that, at least? Uh, and that, that was in homage to the actress, correct, Susan St. James. Well, I mean, that's where, that's, that's what triggered it, but it was because I was in business with my former husband, and, and quite frankly, as a business owner, um, I was getting no respect, I was just the, I was just John's wife, you know, because mm. my last name was Caruso, and so I got angry about that, because I'm like, you know, people are not treating me like I'm also an owner of the business, and then I, I'm, you know, I got a brain in my head, and I, I'm, I'm working, and they're just saying, you're John's wife, have John call me. And that was bugging me. And so he said, well, just go back to your maiden name. I didn't like my maiden name. So we picked a name and happened to be um, Susan St. James was on TV that weekend. We always used to watch with Miller and Wife. And I tried it out, and it worked. And so, um, and it wasn't until we were divorced, you know, many years later that I actually legally changed it. But my mom, I mean, she didn't care. <laughs> yeah. So that name change did have an impact. In a way, well, it had, it had an impact. Yeah, I got respect as a business owner because I was I was my own entity rather than being the wife of. And so, I mean, this was back in the seventies, and you know, I mean, in seventy three, women couldn't even get a credit card in their own name. I mean, society has been late, but has you know, it has changed. It hasn't that long ago that women um, didn't have a lot of rights that they have today, and so um, I was struggling with that as a fairly young person, but as somebody that really wanted to be valued and get the job done. And it's tough when you have those stupid, stupid, stupid hurdles. You know? Yeah. How many women, and you've talked about the young women who are up and coming, and there are those uh, uh, from the Pippa man who's going to start on the starting grid uh, on Sunday, uh, you know, and the number has fluctuated. So there have been three women uh, starting, uh, I think four at one year. Four, four. yeah, yes, yeah, we had four. four. Yeah, yeah. Yes, there yep. was four. Um, I guess in the next um, five years, do you see that number, four, maybe even more, starting not only in the Indianapolis 500, but at least at the same time, regular drivers on the open wheel IndyCar circuit? Do you see that uh, happening in the next few years? Or does it just depend? Probably not. Probably not in the near term, only because of the, knowing the talent pool out there. I mean, Catherine Legg, who is absolutely qualified and, and talented, and, and and really doing and should have been in the field, but due to circumstances beyond her control, um, you know, she's racing in sports cars right now. Uh, but she was very close to having a program for for Indy and being part of a team that didn't happen. So. So there's certainly two. I mean, Pippa and Catherine could be full-time competitors if they have sponsorship um, in the IndyCar series. I mentioned Isla Agron, who is running in the Sports 2000, but she's, you know, this is only her second year in Sports 2000. She has to go through Indy Lights. To, I mean, so it, in five years, I, I don't know. I mean, there's some in Europe worldwide that could, that could get serious about coming to this country, but, you know, it... In the next five years, I don't see a major shift. Um, I, I, I would hope that there could be back to where we would have a couple. I mean, Simona Di Silvestro is running in Formula E and certainly, you know, could be very competitive if she had a full-season program. So, you know, I think we could be back where we could have three or four, you know, in, in the next five years and within those talent pool have a winner. I mean, Catherine is certainly capable of winning in, in the IndyCar series um, and, and certainly Simona Di Silvestro is. 
But, you know, to be able to get one of the major teams like Andretti or Pevsky or Ganassi or, you, you know, you, or even now with, uh, with Schmidt-Peterson, I mean, you have to get a major team that is fully funded and, and can build a campaign um, with that team and have all the chemistry, you know, all the elements, the things that, that money can't buy. Um, the, the chemistry between an engineer and a driver and a team and, and owner, uh, that all takes time to build. I mean, you look at the, the dynasties of Penske and Ganassi, those teams with drivers like um, Dixon and when Frankini was with them, and, and uh, I mean, those take time to gel, you know, and when they do, they're like solid. You know, they are so solid, they're hard to penetrate, and, and that's why what happened yesterday uh, when you see James his cliff go out there and, and do an amazing job of qualifying with the team that, you know, they've only been together for a couple of years, and after that horrific accident that James had, it's just heartwarming to see somebody overcome that, but to know that there's also that chemistry was still there from before he had the accident, and, and it's just gotten stronger. So it's, those are really hard elements to pull together, um, but, uh, but I can see it happening, but I don't, I don't see a flood of it. You know, a lot of women showing up, but they're out there. So what we have to do is, is get the support for them and, uh, and the timing. You know, it's all about timing as well. Um, you know, it's all got to come together. And, and I think you mentioned very early during this uh, interview that you still compete and race uh, in the champions circuit. Um, if I'm right? No, it's, it's, it's vintage racing. Vintage, and yeah. so there's, yeah, yeah, vintage racing. There's a couple of series. There's one in particular. Um, it's, it's called Sports Car Vintage Racing Association, SVRA. Um, they have a fabulous schedule of about 15, 16 races. And, and I don't own a vintage race car, so I don't get to campaign my own car. But I get a chance every once in a while to run other people's cars. And it's, it's a blast. It's fun. Um, you know, they're people who just love the cars that they have, and uh, they're cars that are not, they're no longer eligible to compete in any of the top series, and some of them have historical value, and some are just really fabulous cars that don't have any else, don't have any place else to race, and so, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a real celebration of the cars and the people, and uh, and we get to go to some fabulous racetracks like Watkins Glen, and I'll be racing in June on uh, Father's Day weekend here at the Brickyard um, in the uh, in the vintage race that weekend. Oh, that's the, to continue to race um, at the Brickyard, uh, you know, just <laughs> that's that just is un- awesome, unbelievable. Um, yeah. and- well, last last year I came in second, and I was on the podium at Indianapolis Motor Speedway drinking milk. Now, I mean, you talk about, I mean, I, it brought tears to my eyes, and even though I knew that it was certainly not the Indy 500, it was an experience that sort of made you feel validated that, you know, you got to do at least that, even if it wasn't for the 500. I know I probably took up more time than you may have initially thought with this interview, but I cannot thank you enough, Lynn St. James, uh, current uh, racer in the Vintage uh, uh, Cars series, uh, businesswoman, uh, one of the people who've made history and continue to make history in sports racing here in the United States. And, uh, Lynn, thank you so very much for the time. Uh, definitely hope you enjoy the rest of the week leading up to the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500. Lynn, it has been a pleasure, and uh, hopefully you don't hold it against me that one of the reasons why I was a big and continue to 
to be a big uh, uh, racing fan was my older brother was a big Bobby Rahal fan. So in 92... Oh, well, that, was, yeah. that, well, I can't hold that together. Bobby's a good guy, so he's a good friend. But uh, No, I, I enjoyed the interview. You were, very, you, know, you were knowledgeable and, and enthusiastic, which helps. Um, and all I can add is, like, if you want more information, go to svra.com, uh, which you want to know more about the vintage racing, and go to lindsayjames.com um, about what my schedule on life is doing and i've got a book out which i think people have enjoyed very much that have read it and uh, uh and, and I, I hope we all watch the hundreds running and that it's going to be a fabulous race i know uh next sunday uh what's the book i suppose it's called an incredible journey okay an incredible Lynn St. james journey. an incredible journey yeah lynn thank you so very much for the time we definitely hope to catch up with you uh sometime down the road it's been such a fun uh conversation okay well thanks so much The Atlanta Dream are 3-1 after an impressive overtime victory over the New York Liberty, the team with the best record in the WNBA last season. And joining us right now is Atlanta Dream swing guard, Angel McCautry. First of all, Angel, congratulations on the win on the road against the Liberty, a team that was so dominant last year to get a win in overtime at the Garden. has to be gratifying. Um, that's a, it's a great team win um, to win at the Garden. You know, um, the Garden has a different atmosphere than anywhere else we play so this was a tough one um they're a great team um so th- i'm very proud of how the girls came out and played tonight i guess you get even more juiced up a little bit given that it is a different atmosphere here at madison square garden the kids were out with the thunder sticks uh, has to get your juices flowing even more absolutely you know the garden is one of the most famous arenas in the world and the kids gave a lot of energy so um to try to get this one in overtime it was it was definitely a great road win, especially early in the morning, because we know, you know, it's tough to play a game in the morning as soon as you wake up. Are you a morning person? Not necessarily, but uh, that's not going to stop me from getting out there and playing. Three uh, one start to the season. There's so much of the season left, but how important is a start like this, three out of your first four, to set the tone going forward? It's very important. We just want to redeem ourselves from last year. Um, we didn't have so good of a season. Um, and then they picked us finished second to last in the um, WBA. So it was kind of like, you know, a slap in our face. We we definitely playing with a chip on our shoulder. Just want to prove everybody wrong. So once again, Angel McCartney joining us. So you use that as motivation, the uh, prognostications of the team, uh, supposedly not to, uh, finishing well this season. How do you channel that into your play on the basketball court? Well, we just play hard. You know, we, we, we have so much more we can do. Um, we know we can get better in so many ways, and that show tonight getting this tough win, and we still haven't reached our true potential yet. Girls, do you agree? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it is Angel McCautry and company on the a lot and on the a lot of sports talk uh, podcast. Oh no, you all, please you can shout out to whomever. Shout out to Atlanta, <laughs> Christina, Joy, Mom, Dad, love you guys. Uh, nothing for Louisville. LL, but I don't want the girls to get jealous that I shot at Louisville, you know. <laughs> I'm sure Jeff Walls will be absolutely excited for uh, that shout-out. Uh, what were the emotions after the season was over, no playoffs for the first time since 2008? What were those emotions like right after the season was over? I was I was lost because we I was always used to playing. Um, we were in the playoffs, and I was just like, what am I going to do with myself? I'm sitting here watching the playoffs on TV. It wasn't fun. So um, we definitely want to get back and um, get back to the playoffs and, and contend for a championship. So when you said you were lost, you watched uh, the WNBA playoffs? Yeah, I, I watched the playoffs, and, and it, was just, it was just a feeling like you want to be out there. So 
we want to get back to that. Uh, how is that uh, ice bath going right now with your feet inside at 11 o'clock in the morning? It's killing me, but I got my radio voice on and ready to go. Oh, <laughs> future, <laughs> future DJ at a top 40 station, Angel McCautry. Thank you so very much for joining us. DJ AM, check me out on the ones and twos. <laughs> Thank you, Angel. <laughs> J-A-M on the ones and twos on the wheels of steel. How about that? We thank Angel McCautry as well as Lynn St. James so very much for making episode number 27 a very special one on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. Tune in next week for episode number 28 of the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. One of our interviews will be with one of the legends of women's college basketball. Jennifer Rosati was on the 1995 UConn women's basketball team that won their first national championship last month. Gina Ariema's crew won their 11th national championship. So one of the pioneers who started the UConn dynasty, Jen Rosati, joining us. She did such a great job as a head coach at the University of Hartford. And last month, she was named as the new head coach at George Washington University for women's basketball. We caught up with her not too long after she was hired as head coach in our nation's capital, leading the Colonials women's basketball team. So one of our interviews for episode number 28 is with Jennifer Rosati and stay tuned to a lot of sports talk and a lot of sports talk.com will be covering games from major league soccer the WNBA and on Saturday we will be in Philadelphia Pennsylvania for the men's lacrosse semifinals that set the number one team in the country the Maryland Terrapins they'll be taking on the Brown Bears you have the Loyola Greyhounds in the other semifinal taking on one of the powers of men's lacrosse one of the traditional powers of men's lacrosse the North Carolina Tar Heels making it to championship weekend for the first time since 1993 we will be at Lincoln Financial Field covering the men's lacrosse national semifinals so you'll find coverage of that on a lot of sports talk.com we will be there and you will be here next week to listen to episode number 28 of the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. I'm sure you will. Thank you so very much for joining us. My name is Adeshina Koike, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.